This episode is brought to you by PagerDuty. In an always-on world, teams trust PagerDuty to help them deliver a perfect digital experience to their customers every time. With PagerDuty, teams spend less time reacting to incidents and more time building for the future. From digital disruptors to Fortune 500 companies, over 12,000 businesses rely on PagerDuty to identify issues and opportunities in real time and bring together the right people to fix problems faster and prevent them from happening again. We're like the central nervous system for a company's digital operations. We can analyze digital signals from virtually any software-enabled system and help you intelligently pinpoint issues like outages as well as capitalize on opportunities while empowering teams to take the right real-time action. To see how companies like GE, Vodafone, Box, and American Eagle Outfitters rely on PagerDuty to continuously improve their digital operations, visit pagerduty.com. Welcome to episode 150 of Greater Than Code, and I'm Artemis Starr, and I'm here with my fabulous co-host, Rain Hendricks. Oh, thank you. And I'm here with my friend, Jessica Kerr. Good morning. And I am here with John Sowers. Good morning. And I'm here with Avdi Grimm. Hello. And joining us today is Amir Rajan, who is a pretty decent dev, and he is someone who's constantly trying to improve his craft. He is a jack-of-all-trades. He's comfortable with a number of platforms and languages, a mercenary coder for hire, the CEO of Dragon Ruby, otherwise known as Ruby Motion, and an indie game developer. And his claim to fame is a dark room for mobile and Nintendo Switch, an RPG which conquered the world and took the number one spot in the App Store and placed in the top number 10 paid apps across 70 countries. It has been downloaded over 4 million times. Wow. Cool. Hello. Hey, how's it going? I would say that you're more than decent, possibly. I'll be honest, I have no idea what I'm doing most of the time. Which, just... which puts you squarely in the more than decent category. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's consistent. I'm persistent. I'll roll my head on the keyboard until something works. And I think that's, that's how I make up for not knowing what I'm doing most of the time. What is your superpower and how did you acquire it? I think my super duper superpower is I am very sensitive to pain uh, with, with regards to like ah. uh, uh, development. So like an example, when you think about pressing uh, copy and paste on your keyboard, like command C, command V, I got to the point where I was like, well, isn't it better that instead of moving my left thumb to the <laughs> left command, wouldn't it be better to do the right thumb on, on the right command? Because you do command tab and you're like lifting your entire, you've got your thumb and your tab, thumb on your left command and then the tap keys with your pinky. So your entire you know hand is off of home row. It's ridiculous. So I was like, okay, but if I use my right command and tab, then it's totally better. So almost to a detriment, I'm really sensitive to that pain. It puts me in a position where if I'm in a team, I make the pain go away and the productivity benefits that everyone else gets uh, is worth is worth the, the effort that I put in there. So Yay, I'll, developer I'll productivity, my favorite topic. Developer productivity. I wanted to ask whether you feel literal pain, like do you have strain injury in your hands, or is this a, I observe that I am doing this in a suboptimal way? Yes. Uh, generally speaking, I observe that I'm doing this in a suboptimal way, but uh, I do have wrist pain, which is why I'm obsessed with keyboards. This entire podcast can totally be about keyboards. For me. <laughs> I'm going to put can... a five-minute time box on the keyboard talk. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I do have wrist pain and uh, I obsess about keyboards, but yeah, generally this is 
suboptimal and I, I want to fix it kind of thing. But I just take it to the nth degree and it, it's become a superpower. I've, I've turned it into a superpower. What do you do when people say, how much time does that save you? I say it saves me enough time over a 40-year period because I plan to do this for a very long time. And I also try to uh, explain to them that the cognitive overhead for context yes. switching has to be part of it, right? So it's like, it's just a few seconds yeah. to move this file over. I'm like, well, it's a few seconds to move the file over and then the 15 minutes to go back to what I was originally doing in my head. Exactly. Uh, it's about yeah. brains, not clocks. Right, exactly. Yeah. The other exactly. thing is, if you ruin your career because of RSI, then how much does it matter if you save time? Yes, that's it. Oh, yeah. So back to keyboards. I've got a Nyquist. I built it myself. It's got kale bronze switches, and it's super clicky. Let me, let me click it for you. Oh, yeah, it is clicky. So that's and your favorite? That is my favorite. Do you like the clicky? Yeah. it's actually. Uh, I found that it actually helps with typing accuracy. So I went with like a super light, smooth switch, and my, my typing accuracy fell. Mm. And oh, because it was too easy? Yeah, it, I don't know what it is. Like, I think that's like the subconscious thing. Like, when your finger has the click and the audible feedback, there, there's a component there. But I, but my actually dropped by three percent when I. <laughs> I love that you have a number for that. That's great. Yes, like I said, I obsess about this stuff. Yeah, it, it dropped by three percent, and I was like, this is uh, beyond a standard deviation that I'm seeing. So, and I got the clicking. I'm like, hey, this is great. I'm back up. <laughs> Amir, uh, you can, obviously, if you have firmware or you can use a carabiner to set up a configuration where it disallows you from using the wrong shift, for instance. So you can't, if you use left shift in A, it won't do anything. Oh, my friend, you should see my carabiner and hammer spoons configuration. <laughs> I'm uh, thinking maybe you could, like, trigger an electric shock, too. That might be good. Just to talk about the superpower, I actually have an eye tracker, and I use it to clip. So I'll look at an area... And then I'll press like a layer on my key to, to click with my eye. The accuracy, oh my God. The, the accuracy is great cool. though. So the accuracy, um, you'll, you have like about a 200 pixel like accuracy issue. So you can use it to click windows and stuff, which is good. You just can't use it to do, you know, like fine selection. Yeah. But, but sometimes it's like, I want to click in this text area or. You know, I want to swap back to a previous screen. So I, I just like literally look at it and then press a button and it, and it without clicks. moving your hands. Without moving my hands. This is the insanity wow. that I'm talking about. And I spent uh, $2,000 on the SDK for the eye tracker. <laughs> That's awesome. And just like ridiculous thing. And you're like, Amir, why would you do something like this? But, okay. But we need anyways. people who obsess about that to find the important things that yeah. then. They, they pass on others. So what have you passed on? You mentioned earlier some of the stuff you share with your team and everyone's productivity is helped. Mm -hmm. So some of the things that I share, uh, like an example. So this is actually a, a story from some of my mercenary stuff. So uh, I'll do like .NET development. And for those that either aren't familiar with .NET development or C-sharp development, there's a heavy emphasis on uh, the debugger and using the IDE and stepping through code and using that type mm -hmm. of fidelity with regards to troubleshooting as opposed to like testing or standard or like print line statements. And the really interesting artifact that I found is that if I go around and pair with enough people, the breakpoints are always in the same place because no one communicates with regards to how they troubleshoot. I go around and say, okay, his breakpoint is pretty much in the same place as this other guy's breakpoint, which is pretty much in the same place as this other guy's breakpoint. 
So then I look at the code base and try to find a means to provide some other form of feedback that doesn't require me to put that breakpoint in there. Um, and so that could be like log statements. That could be like a, a file that's that's outputted as an artifact or uh, artifact when you're like when you set your log level to a higher level. It could be part of the CI uh, tool an suite. Event. It could be an event. Yeah. So like any some of those things that just kind of like ancillarily or automatically happen for them just by being sensitive to you're setting a breakpoint. You're pressing a button. You're using your mouse. Oh gosh, you're using your mouse. This is great. <laughs> This is already horrible that you're using your mouse. But uh, like some of those, some of those things where people are like, "Why would you even invest this time?" And then that cognitive overload just goes away. It's just so much nicer. The thing about figuring out sort of what is possible. Okay, I've got an analogy. Bear with me for a sec. So, say you're playing Civ Six, and you've got a settler, and you're like, "Okay, this is a good spot, but there's fog of war there. If I just spent another turn and I moved over there, maybe there would be an even better spot." Mm-hmm. Or let's say I am oh, starting the fog to of use. War, that's the part where you can't. You can't see, the see map what's in front of yeah, you. Yeah. So you find a good spot, but there might be so another one. Some around. unexplored territory that's okay. nearby, right? Or let's say I'm starting to use Git, and I'm coming from Subversion, and I'm committing at the end of the day, like a sort of normal thing that you might do. And then I'm like, is once a day really optimal? How would I know that? And so then I set up a thing that would commit to Git every time I exited insert mode. I see nothing wrong with anything you said. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and so I was committing like every so, few seconds. And this was too frequently. <laughs> you uh, have but, to go to the opposite extreme before it, you can hope to find the right balance. Yeah, if I had never explored that territory, I, I would never have realized that how much closer to every few seconds I can go versus every day and be productive and find something that works for me. I might have settled on like twice a day, which would have been not nearly enough. Yeah, and I think the key point right there is is the perspective. Another, another analogy I use is, I'm not sure if you, uh, Plato's Allegory of the Cave, have you, are you familiar with that? Well, for those that aren't, it's essentially, you know, this group of people that understand life within this cave, and that's all they know. Uh, one of them gets their shackles removed. Uh, they step outside of the cave and see this into this whole other world. But when they come back into the cave and try to explain this other world to everyone else, they're considered crazy and no one listens to them. I think having that perspective is important. It makes you, it makes you better. Yeah. Uh, and that's so, what makes data useful. Yeah. You have for perspective and the data gives you clarity or focus. Yeah. And uh, uh, pixels. Right. And the important question I try to ask myself is like relative to what, when someone says, mm. Oh, this web framework is awesome. And I go, Relative to what? Relative to the previous version of that same framework? Of course it's awesome. Because that was version 2.0 and now you're on 3.0. But relative to what? And uh, with regards to deciding on, like, do we take the next step in Civ 5 for Fog of War? I think that comes with experience. It, it becomes intrinsic in how you think. And you're like, you, you get a feel for, it. is it worth the effort to move another step to find that uh, extra area or is where I'm at? But you get that place. by exploring too far. Yes. You you talked about like studying what developers are doing and finding the common points where they're feeling pain without noticing it. Artie has done a ton of work on that. Artie, I am very intrigued. She she's built you up. Like this should be this is gonna be awesome. <laughs> I had a whole chain of thoughts when he started to talk about all the details around keyboards and these subtle things with 
uh, respect to interfaces. So just to give you a problem statement to think about, I fairly recently got a magic leap that I've been having a lot of fun playing with and thinking through what kinds of things we could build if you break all your constraints in terms of how we interface with the machine, right? Wait, what is a magic leap? It is a augmented reality device that it basically builds a polygon map of the room that you're in. And then you can overlay a 3D world of both sound and a 3D world of visualizations like you're in a game that sit on top of the polygon maps of your room. And then um, you've got a focus controller so with an eye tracker. So for example, I can look at something in my room and then I can bring that application into focus. Like I could walk around, for example, look at a thing and snap. And that would be how I activated an application. Like, for example, I could have an, a 3D little address book that's virtual sitting on my desk. And I could look at my address book, snap my fingers, and it would open a augmented reality address book that you could then go and interact with in space, right? And having controls like that, you've got fine-grained gesture controls. So we can do motions, we can do sound sensing, we can track where our eyes are looking, we can track our relative position in this polygon room. And then if I start to think, okay, what if this room is my new IDE? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, what, if, right. what if this is my next-gen IDE and all of the ideas and concepts I'm building with my team we interact in this room together, perhaps, right? Or maybe I have my own room and you have your own version of the room and we can interact with our networks of thoughts we have active, potentially, like I can invite you into my thought space, right? And if we start thinking about, if we break all those constraints, what the ergonomics would look like around how would we organize our ideas and wire things together and think together and how would breaking those constraints change things. I'm curious what kind of ideas you have. So uh, just just as an aside, with regards to the eye tracker and this this idea, and just to give you another example of, you know, kind of breaking the mold and reevaluating efficiencies and rethinking how we how we do things. Another thing that I use uh, this eye tracker for is the eye tracker can, of course, detect my eyes. So it knows when I'm sitting at the computer versus not. And so what I did was I have a, a daemon process and what it does is every second it pulls to see if it sees my eyes. And if it does, it takes a screenshot of my screen, grayscales it, does an OCR read of the screen itself, gets all processes that are available, exports all that information, and uploads it to S3, my private S3 server. And it does this every second forever and ever and ever for the entire year. So you think about like, what was that one website that I went to and it had dinosaurs on it and I never thought I would ever need to bring down this website. And now I'm in this situation where I didn't bookmark it and I can't remember it. Well, now I have a, I have a grappable searchable history of everything that I was looking at at that point in time across the history of what I'm looking at. Wow. Talk about an external memory. Look yeah, I mean, and it's amazing. Like you, we have all this power in this technology, which is not, yeah. Just, just even taking something as sim simple as a demon process in S3, for, forget like this augmented reality stuff. What we have access to right now, we're not even le leveraging to its full potential. And we've got the superpower. We've got the ability to do this versus someone that doesn't have the ability to talk to a computer, I guess. But yeah, these these ideas are you know worth looking at and as a as an ancillary thing because I do contract work. It ends. It ended up uh, helping me out in contract work too because it's almost like a, a dash cam 
you know, he's like, oh, we don't believe that you worked 15 hours on this. I'm like, um, actually, I did. And I have proof that I that I did work 15 hours on X, Y, Z. And you are getting billed for that specific time. So, yeah, I mean, a, a part of it is like I love I love the idea of all these extended capabilities we have and all these cool devices. It's just unfortunate that we're not even leveraging even simplest stuff to, you know, extend our lives. It, with with like computers and the devices that we have now, we are only scratching the surface. Yes, exactly. With, with the, the combinations, like here you've combined an eye tracker, a screenshotter, OCR, S3, search functionality, and other stuff to build this external photographic memory. Exactly. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're, I mean, we're only starting to explore this stuff. Mm-hmm. And you you have to, somebody has to obsess over it in yes. order to explore that particular direction. Yeah. I can even think about, I can say like, when is the highest propensity of time for me to start like browsing Reddit? Is there, <laughs> is there, is there a pattern, right? Is there I mean, a particular class that I just hate looking at? Yeah. And it might find out like, you know what, Amir, you're useless after 3 PM. Mm. So just, just take just a nap, stop. just stop for the day. And then, you know, you can, you can measure all these like interesting aspects of your, of your own psyche. And then again, optimize. So I've been studying what I've been calling idea flow or this flow of ideas between Mm -hmm. the developer and the software as they're working. And if you think about your thoughts as a process where you're making this continuous stream of decisions over time and you're looking at things and seeing things and making a decision and then you're looking at things and seeing things and making a decision. And we have this context that builds up over time. And so I started thinking about this flow over time like a musical process and then looking for musical signal changes and creating events based on, oh, there's a musical signal change here. What What is this event? And what if we give this thing a name? And so I started breaking down the the process of idea flow as a, uh, my background is in statistical process control. So, so, you know, everything is a control system in my brain. And so I started like thinking about breaking down a stream of intentions where you've got like a steering wheel that you're working your way toward a little mini goal and you're breaking down a bigger intention into smaller intentions in each one. You're kind of steering the way to the goal. And then you run into these disruptions, what I started calling the WTF events. Mm-hmm where the mental model in your head and what is going on in the world is incongruent somehow. Your predictions are off and you're surprised by something. And then from that moment that you're in that surprise state until you resolve that discord, that dissonance, you can't move forward. You can't have flow again until you resolve that. And so I started measuring these things as like, you know, TTR metrics. And then you could associate these with the particular area code you were in, what your thought processes were during that time. So imagine you've got, you know, the snapshot of all the things you're focusing on over time. And then overlaying over the top of that, you've got the breakdown of your big intention into smaller smaller intentions as kind of markers in time. And then during that moment, you're troubleshooting a problem. All the things that you look at during that time are going to be highly relevant to that particular problem you're troubleshooting, right? Mm-hmm. And so you get a you get a much higher correlation of relatedness during that those troubleshooting events than you do any other time. And so I've been um, working on putting together a way to give us monitoring and feedback loops for all of those sorts of things such that you can fingerprint all of these incidents you have in time. So then the next time you run into a WTF event, you have an error on your screen, right? How can we use the conditions of the current situation as a search 
against your database of past experiences and start building connections and links between those things so that we can take all of our tacit knowledge from software development and figure out ways to make it usable for all of our future problems we run into, figure out how to make it shareable for other people that run into similar problems. There's a, there's a whole set of connectedness related issues that, you know, there's a, a gold mine of potential and I will say. Yeah, and I agree. And I think another caveat to that, uh, I guess specifically as developers, is that a part of it can be beneficial if it's generic, but you have to tune it to yourself. Um, I almost feel like you, it has to be specifically tuned and specialized for you as a person. And uh, over time, it's just going to get better and better for who you are and gets rid of all the noise. I think that's that's the most important thing is that I want to get rid of as much noise as possible so I can be present in the things that I'm that I want to be present in. Oh yeah, be present. On Arrested DevOps the other day, Nicole Forsgren was talking about how they defined productivity in the state of DevOps report and it was about being able to do complex tasks and focus on them. And and it is that there's like this developer productivity is about developers actually being able to use our brains for the really hard stuff. Yeah. So one of the things I think is really interesting here is that you are effectively working to create an environment that enables you working in this environment to solve problems. So you're built, you're doing all this work to build up an environment around you that enables you. And in a sense, it's not very much like the traditional sort of Shannon Weaver communication model where you tell a computer to do a thing and then the computer does a thing and it gives you some information and then you respond to the information and then you tell the computer to do a thing and this keeps going. It's more that you're sort of working together. You as a part of this system are working towards goals and you specify the goals because you're a human, but it's a mutually dependent sort of dynamically coupled system. Yeah. And uh, just, just to add to that, I do it out of necessity from the perspective of I'm one person and I love building video games and I'll occasionally have collaborate people that I collaborate with uh, here and there small collaborations, but I'm not the type of person that will have a team of you know 30 people. So if it gets to a point where I, I can't scale, I have to keep a, a pin on my upkeeps and make sure that they don't hinder me from you know doing, doing all the things that I want to do. So that's one of my, one of my big motivations is that I, I'm, I, can't clone myself and I don't want to do deal with a big team. So how do I fix this problem uh, that I have? And it's, and it's about saying, okay, well, I can increase my own productivity to the nth degree. And it starts off really slow and it's difficult, but with every new knickknack, every new skill, every new automation, every new trick you learn, it compounds over time. So like, uh, for example, you had that thing where it's like you, you're trying to get the auto commit, get commit stuff to work. Well, Every time you save a file versus once a day, you had to derive some kind of file watcher out of that. And that's an artifact that you can use moving forward. Right? That's not something that you have to figure out again of how to reliably watch a file and make it do something. And so later in the future, you get to, you get to leverage all the, all the waste, quote unquote, waste of time you've, you've, you've had in the past. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think of it like you, you gain that kind of skill of file watching, for instance, and you, you grow a couple inches and you can reach things that are on a higher shelf. Yes. And suddenly you start using those champagne glasses, whereas before you would just pour the champagne into teacups because that's what you could reach. Yeah. And then it's like, well, I'll file watch this thing and then I'll file watch that thing. And then you're like, 
man, it's a little painful to spin up this file washer. Then you streamline that and then make that automatic. And it just, it gets to the point where you get, you get fast. You get, so you get very fast. Key insight of this theory is that you're not improving your performance per se. Like if you've removed yourself from this system, you wouldn't have the same performance. You're improving the per- performance of a system of which you are a part. Right. It seems like automating leverage, like you're looking for opportunities to get more leverage by automating some little bit that gives you kind of more power almost. Yeah. And there's a, the, the first thing is there, there is a deferred gratification because it is really, really hard to, you know, get started with some of this stuff just because uh, like for the eye tracking S3 thing, I mean, I had to deal with C drivers, uh, straight C for the eye tracker. I had to learn S3. I had to learn about daemon processes, uh, OCR, compression. Uh, it, it wasn't, you know, it took time to get to that point. Yeah, and yeah. The obsession helps. It's a helps lot of effort. Yeah, the obsession helps. <laughs> but that, My, but that has, can we call it a superpower? Can we? Can we stop? No, no I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I mean, but but it looks like that to people outside, right? But as long as it's not, as long as it's not affecting your life and taking you away from your other responsibilities, and as long as you still remember to shower at least once a week, then it's not an unhealthy obsession. Right. Um, <laughs> And, but, and our but career said, rewards it. So, I mean, that's that's the, uh, yeah. that's the great part of it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, you said had to learn. And, yeah, you, you were driven by this particular purpose, this goal that you set to learn this thing. But that, that learning becomes a part of you and makes you more powerful in a diversity of ways because all of these pieces can be combined with a thousand others to explore right. more possibility space. Yeah, that's something I try and emphasize when I'm talking about especially in debugging context, but also like in building a new project context where you had to build up all these little pieces in order to finally get them to to solve the problem you were trying to solve. But the little pieces you learned on their own are valuable and can be recombined. And it's and one of the I am working on a talk right now that that tries to put the emphasis on those little bits of learning so that you can especially when you're debugging and like a lot of the things you end up learning aren't things that solve your problem because they're they were before you found the one thing that did solve your problem but those bits of learning are still valuable and and treating them as such makes it feel much less demoralizing to spend x hours banging your head against a problem when you realize you actually were learning new things the whole time the other thing i'm seeing that's kind of interesting is you stitching a whole bunch of things together as a way to create something new because these te- technologies aren't, I mean, they've been out there for a long time, right? But you you had this idea of what you wanted to track in terms of your process. And then you thought, okay, I want to make a snapshot of the thought, <laughs> right? right? What was the thought in this moment, right? How do I capture all the information possible about what, you know, what was going on in this particular moment? It makes me wonder, too, if you started adding some various kind of automated indexing in that like they have those brain controllers where you can basically fingerprint the electrical signals coming off your neocortex at that moment in time, kind of like do a simulated unfold of your neocortex and fingerprint your thought in your brain. And I wonder if you could use that like as a search such that then you could think the same thought later, what was that dinosaur page? And if that could pull up the index to the dinosaur. You are dangerous for me because (laughs) I'm over here like looking at foot pedals and potentially ways to, you know, incorporate this. And you're like, oh, just jack right into your brain. And this is like, I'm totally doing this. 
So for the record, the SDK for the EKG. (laughs) (laughs) So for the record, I I have foot pedals. And and as a matter of fact, I brought my Kinesis, speaking of keyboards and and, and optimizations, I brought my Kinesis and my foot pedals. I I took a a checked bag so that I could take my uh, Kinesis and my foot pedals with me um, in this visit to St. Louis. So so, there's nothing wrong with I am not shy. Yeah, obviously. I mean, obviously. So it was that or I spend five hundred dollars buying another set. (laughs) It'll happen. Eventually. Did you say obviously? Obviously. (laughs) Oh yeah, that's right. It's one of your uh, neologisms, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> anywho, so with that said, though, there's a flip side to all this, um, which is the side that I I tend to take in these discussions, somewhat ironically, c- considering my foot pedals. But it's that I've observed, and I've observed this primarily in myself. I've observed that developers are extraordinarily good at optimizing processes. Um, A lot of what we do is optimizing processes. I mean, a lot of what we do for a living is optimizing other people's processes. But in the process, we often become very, very good at optimizing for local maxima and completely missing, missing other maxima. My favorite... My favorite easy to access example of this, I think, is I was an Emacs head for a long, long time, spent, I don't know, well over a decade, you know, learning to, to use Emacs really effectively. And I used it for writing a lot of my books and stuff. And at some point in there, I also finally taught myself to touch type. And I was, you know, touch typing with Kinesis <laughs> with I my foot that, pedals. I like that you had um, 10 years of optimizing Emacs before you learned to touch type. Yeah, isn't that great? Yeah. Uh, priorities. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I, this, there's nothing wrong with what you've said so far. This you know, is exactly so, you know, <laughs> and like, like increasing my, my speed of putting words out. And then one day, well, it's not really a day, but it sounds better this way. One day I um, started encountering a lot of RSI issues and I tried many different things to ameliorate them. But one of the things that I started doing is I started using some actually decent text to speech software, like commercial text to speech software for not for coding. I haven't figured out how to make that work yet, but for prose writing. And what I discovered is, like, I could have optimized for my, like, keyboard text output all for for weeks and months and years, but I will never be able to communicate thoughts as fast with a keyboard as I can speaking. And if text-to-speech can actually keep up with that, it's a really efficient way of doing it. But it would have been really easy to just keep optimizing for that local maxima of, okay, I have a metric, which is words per minute. Accurate and words typing per minute. accuracy. Yeah, and typing accuracy. We can measure those. So yeah, accurate words per minute. And so just keep increasing that. Keep increasing that with new devices, new new pieces of software and stuff like that, new training. And I could have, you know, completely missed the fact that there is this whole other mode which just sort of bypasses all of it. Yeah. So that's local maxima is a thing that that's really easy to fall into, I think. So there's something I think that unifies both what you just said and, Amir, what you were talking about, about how you were doing eye tracking thing, which is that approaches are conditioned by pragmatics. In other words, the fact that eye tracking exists and it makes an approach possible for you that wouldn't have been possible. If eye tracking didn't exist, you wouldn't even have been able to think the thought, hey, could I use eye tracking to solve this? Likewise, if high quality text to speech software didn't exist, you wouldn't have even been able to think the thought, hey, could I just talk my books into the computer? But then, so Amir found that eye tracking was a possibility, but it was completely impractical, but he made it work anyway. And that gives him the opportunity. He might find out that this is perfect. I mean, well, especially for like, you know, people that then you get into accessibility, people who have an even harder time moving our hands than Amir does. And then he has the opportunity to make it into a product that makes it practical. 
pragmatics are also determined by approaches. What we want to do determines what we try to do. It's That's a right. very cool feedback system. Amir, did you did did you have something that that feeds into um, game development from the uh, the local maxima thing? Yeah, and I completely agree with your local maxim, and it's something that is really with me having all this productivity to stay as a small team or you know solo work with with uh, some of my games. It's also a detriment because now I'm in this echo chamber, and there's always that concern of am I in a local maximum and have I missed something just because I'm working with myself and optimizing my own my own stuff as opposed to maybe seeing what what others uh, what others do and uh it's a struggle i think a part of just being curious about different things uh, helps with that so it's this new uh like the what was that it's like a console that's it's like yellow and it's got this like weird crank play game the most ridiculous thing right why would you ever want to work on this but just my curiosity is like i'm i'm totally getting this so i'm going to do something with it so i think that helps compensate uh for the local maximum and uh with regards to that when I see others work, I try to think of, is this the best way or is this the most optimum way to work? And uh, with regards to game development, I feel that we are in a horribly, horrible local maximum when it comes to game development, specifically because uh, if you think about, I mean, we have, I guess, 50 years of precedence that says, this is how you shall make a game. And uh, you've got this concept of you know, sprites, entities, nodes, physics bodies. These are all just nomenclature that that's out there. No one has taken the time to step back and say, wait, hold on. We were dealing with hardware that was from 50 years ago. Uh, we were dealing with compilers and tool chains that are 50 years old. And some of these concepts maybe don't hold water anymore. Maybe we are in this local maximum of this is how you should, you shall build a video game. And no one took the, took the opportunity to come out and look down from, from a hill and see if there's a higher hill somewhere else. I think uh, the best thing, best analogy I can think of was was with Rails back in the day, and uh, look at all the stuff I'm not doing. Right? You have uh, Enterprise Java Beans, you've got Spring, you've got all these web frameworks that this is how you do what, this is how you're supposed to build things, and then Rails comes and says, eh, maybe not, maybe we can do it this way, and maybe it's better, maybe it's faster, and yes, it's going to have bad parts to it, but that's that was definitely something I found with regards to specific mobile development and game development. Uh, we're in a horrible local maximum uh, with both of those. And uh, that's where, uh, I guess, with the new initiatives and the new products and kind of what I've done uh, over the past five years with the games that I've built, I've explored this other approach to uh, doing game development that I think maybe it may in- interrupt the market or cause out people, which is what I'm hoping for, at least. Interrupt, <laughs> nice. It reminds me very much of um, Brett Victor had a talk a couple a while ago called The Future of Programming. He set up his presentation very much in a like 1975 context where he's wearing a pocket projector and he's using a transparency projector for this whole talk. And he set himself in the time of 1975 saying, we've got all these things we do to develop code. We have text files and compilers and hard drives. And surely by the time 1990 rolls around, we will have come up with much better ideas for how we can organize all of our development tools. And of course, everything he points out, which was a great idea in 1975, is something we're still stuck with. It's insane. We still keep doing it. And another another frustration I have is that no one questions it. We get into this uh, situation where it's like, why do, you, why do you do it this way? 
And then, so a specific example with uh, with games is uh, just this concept of a, a, a game loop, right? This is the thing that runs as fast as possible, similar to quest animation frames, and you have, you have all these frameworks out there. And the right way, the way you're supposed to do it is this game loop or this on update event has to have a parameter passed to it called delta time. And this delta time is a float value that gives you the time between your last uh, your last render frame and your current render frame. And so when it comes to game development uh, and building out a game, building out physics, building out rendering, uh, how, how your character moves, you're supposed to multiply everything by this, this delta time. And it's just this massive cognitive overhead. Uh, so like you have a jump power, you can't just say, move the character by this man, this much jump power. No, you have to move the character by this much jump power multiplied by the delta time. And you ask people, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this insanity over and over again? And it's like, well, this is just how we do it. And that's such a, a weird, you know, answer. It's just, it's not enough for me. This is how we do it. Why? Why, why is it how you do it? I, I feel the frustration and it's unfortunate. Yeah. So we're here in 2019. We're still using text files and you know, compilers. Why? Well, this is how we've always done it. I think it takes a certain kind of mind to be willing to step back from all your foundational assumptions, everything you know as the way it's always been done, to look at the world through all the lenses that are available to look through it at and go, okay. What are we actually trying to do here? To step out of the cave? Yeah, to step out of the cave. <laughs> because, and, it, and it, it's brave to do that. Because as soon as you, you, I know you experienced this, as soon as you go back in and start talking to everyone else, they think you're nuts. Yeah, people think I was complete nuts for creating, creating a video game using a dynamic, dynamic interpretive language. They're like, there's no way this is going to work. And it does. And the thing is, is like, well, it works because, uh, one, we've gotten a lot smarter with how we, uh, we do dead code limitation, elimination. Uh, the compiler tool chains are much more advanced with a Clang and LLVM and how they do all their optimizations. There's so many things that are just, just better. It, they're just better. Um, and it's good, it's good enough or it's, it's a possibility now. Uh, same thing with the functional programming, I think. You, you see this huge resurgence of functional programming because we actually have memory models and uh, computing power to support that, that kind of immutability. And now that we have that, there's so much, so many way cooler things that we can do with that, with that power that we may not have been able to do before. And you should see people's expressions on, on their face when there was a, I asked, I asked one of my colleagues, like, I want you to take Unity and I want you to render as many sprites on the screen as you can. The sprite, you know, moves in a diagonal, you know, in a diagonal up into the right and then wraps around. What is the limit? Uh, they hit about uh, 2,800 sprites. Uh, and this is a statically typed compiled language, all, all the things, right? This is how you're supposed to do game development. You're supposed to use a statically typed language. You're supposed to compile. Uh, you're supposed to create sprite entities and all these uh, complex classes. And this is how you're supposed to do it. And then I did the same thing with uh, Dragon Ruby. And I was at... 1800 sprites without any kind of optimization in a interpretive language. And then when I went ahead and did the optimizations, we're at 4,500 sprites while, while Unity's, you know, sitting at, it, it's pushing 2,600 and it can't retain the 60 frames per second. So they have to put in delta time 
and then do all the multiplication and stuff. And I'm over here going, I, I'm, I'm not seeing an issue with this. And they asked me, is like, how, how are you able to do this? Well, Unity is using an arcane a version of the core language runtime and an arcane version of Mono. Its GC is 10 decades old. Its compiler tool chain has to go from C sharp to an intermediate language that Microsoft created, MSIO. That MSIO gets converted into C++. C++ gets sent through Clang, which convert, gets converted into an intermediate representation, which then is converted to Bitcode. And so all those things combined, you get a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, and you're left with just unoptimized code. And I'm doing the same thing, except I'm going from interpreted to straight C via C extensions and C bindings, right down to right down to Bitcode through through Clang. All that crap's not there. And it was because I'm taking advantage of what is available today that that that's possible. Yeah, as as Avdi pointed out to me a minute ago, this is an example of you're building on a world that didn't exist when they built Unity. Correct. And so Unity is living in the past in that sense. Out of necessity, I mean, I understand they can't create breaking changes, and I get that. Exactly, breaking changes, because because everyone who uses your stuff holds it back. Yeah, and I'm sure I'll be there uh, at, at certain points, too. But that's a win. Yeah, it's it's a win, and it it pushes it pushes the next step. Like, what? How can we push this even further? People are still just like, I don't understand how you did this kind of thing. So, Artie, you know how you were talking about questioning fundamental assumptions, and then we were saying, well, sometimes it's not received very well when you do that. I think so. <laughs> if you think about Kant, what he did was he did that too much. So the well, Kant's, somebody has to push it to too much, right? Yeah, so we can find the balance. Exactly, right? So Kant's <laughs> program of you know of doubt was I'm going to question what I can mm-hmm. know to be true, right? He went all the way back to thoughts are happening, therefore something must exist that is thinking them, right? So I think the the thing is if it's not working, do more of it. One thing to add to that, and I think uh, it, it goes back to this idea of like this is how we've always done it. A thing that I'm that I've tried to capture, and I think it's uh, it's because of Ruby that I have this, I guess, perception that I didn't have before, is um, uh, I call it continuity of design, TM. I'll, I'll TM that. The idea, though, is uh, the, the idea and the general criticisms uh, that I've had of uh, domain-driven uh, design in the, in the past is that there's, there's no continuity with regards to how do I start with an if statement, uh, an if-else statement, and move it to a more complex complex end structure or architecture. And there has to be, not only that, but there has to be a spectrum saying like, an if-else statement is totally fine, then moving to this other more complex uh, structure is totally fine, and moving to this other uh, more complex structure is totally fine. When someone sees a piece of code and they say, oh, this is, this is an aggregate root, and that's totally fine, you see the final your experience has shown you the final distillation of this construct and what it can become. But what are other valid points on that spectrum? Why do I have to go all the way to an aggregate root in its purest form for it to be valid? And by uh, exercising these like these continuities, these points of continuity on the spectrum, you remember where you came from. So uh, with regards to game development, the, the the idea of like, Oh, this, this has to be an uh, entity component system, or this has to be an, this has to be this kind of architecture. It's like, well, how do you evolve to that? How do I start with just a sprite on the screen? And what forces me down that progression? And when should I do it? Do I have to do it up front? Can I, can't I do it later? 
I think uh, so with uh, with Ruby, I, it's such a beautiful uh, aspect of the language is because you can start with just one line. That's a variable name. And then you're like, well, this variable name needs to be a function. And because of the optional parentheses, the call site doesn't have to change. You can just turn it into a function. And then when that function needs to be used in two places, you put it into a module and then you do an include. And then when that uh, module needs to ho- hold some kind of implicit state, you move it to a class. But at no point are you forced to say, thou shalt create a class, right? You can start with the variable, then make it a function, then make it a module. And that continuity of design is intrinsic in, in, the, in Ruby, the language. And I think I've uh, grasped onto that uh, specifically with uh, game development because that's you just kind of have to work that way. Start with something simple, get something working, and then through experience, know the spectrum. Know it's like this will eventually become a prefab or you know some kind of like class or component, but I'm not going to go there yet. I'm going to wait till the last responsible moment uh, to go there because people waste so much time taking it to that to that final state. And so you've done this 50 times, and then the general response is one, we've always done it this way, and two, uh, well, it's going to save me time in the future. It's like, well, maybe. <laughs> But is it Maybe going to it save will. your save you brain in the future? And no, it's not, because that more complicated structure is actually harder to read and understand. Yes, and uh, it's a detriment to projects because what happens is that I go onto a project and the the project starts starts off. It's a brand new greenfield project, and every developer says, "I want to do this right," and I'm like, "I don't want to do it right. I, I want to categorize all these different patterns because when there's a production fire, guess what's going to happen? We are not going to do it right." And uh, we're going to skip the test or we're going to skip whatever like XML documentation. We're going to skip those things because we're on a deadline. So I'd rather discover the discover valid points on that spectrum so that when I have to make a decision of doing it right, uh, air quotes, right versus fast, I can make that decision objectively and not jeopardize jeopardize like the, the health of the code. And so I think I think that continuity of design that spectrum is so important. And then when someone asks you, why do you do it this way? Well, this is why. This is how we start. This is how we ended. And we've seen this pattern enough times to know that it's best to just go ahead and you know do the same thing for this category of problems. I, the, the thing that you described um, in Ruby is, is definitely one of the things that's attracted me me to it as well over the years, that ability to sort of start from from just like a single line script and gradually move to more of an architected system. And I've seen a few other things over the years that have that property, but it's kind of rare. Um, it is. Gradual typing. Yeah, gradual typing is a good example of that, where you can just start adorning your code with types without having to go through the whole this whole like phase shift of shifting to exactly. to a different language or something like that. I um, there's actually a term for it. Christopher Alexander, the guy that invented the idea of design patterns in the in the architecture world, which is where we got them from in software. He has a term called gradual stiffening, which is where that that idea of being able to sort of gradually add ceremony to a design, right? Uh, rather than than have to go through these these sudden phase shifts where it goes from a little bit of complexity to oh, we reorganize the whole. We have to you know to get to the next level of organization, we have to go through this whole thing. Yeah, and we we try to skip and compensate for it by always taking it to the final step. And we yeah, just say, yeah. we just take it to the finals. Like, this is, this is not sustainable. You can't do but it. But if you way. think you know the right way to do it, you're definitely wrong. Yep. <laughs> because development is an exploration yeah. of the possibility space. Well, I was saying with, with game, even more so. Because the, the novelty is what makes a game a game. 
So it's funny that if I actually have an, if I can actually derive an inheritance hierarchy from a game, I get worried because it's like, this game's going to be boring because I have Reeves. <laughs> have I have what? Reeves in this game. So it's going to be boring. Holy crap. I got to worry about that. You have what? Have what? Reuse. Reuse. Oh. Reuse in my code. Oh, God, that's beautiful. Because the definition of a game is novelty, right? Right. So if I find that all these components end up deriving from this one, like, boss class, I'm like, holy crap, I'm in a lot of trouble because I don't have enough cyclomatic complexity in this game. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, because... uh, that's life, and, and what excites us about life exactly. is the novelty, yeah. Yeah, and this idea of gradual typing works the same way, and the stiffening is, I don't know what I'm building. You can, uh, when a, when a compactly typed language asks me, what is this character you're building? It's like, I don't, I'm building a game. I don't know what this, my main player character is even going to be. So how can you, how can you uh, demand properties of this character up front? When I, when I myself am exploring these ideas. Yeah, Ruby game development is just beautiful, and then the gradual typing. It's that local maximum that people are in that keeps them from seeing these uh, obvious, air quotes, obvious uh, uh, benefits for for using a dynamic language. uh, Mm -hmm. Can I just highlight that you said increase cyclomatic complexity to, (laughs) paraphrasing here, increase variety? Yeah. And that's not an accident, because complexity and variety are two sides of the same coin. Yeah. The novelty, novelty, yeah. Yeah, the novelty is what what's what's so interesting about it. Yeah, it's a weird thing to say. It's like, yeah, this code looks too good. It's too structured. I, I think this is closely related to the quality of richness, which is something mm-hmm. that we okay. very often don't optimize for to our detriment. Richness, that's another of those things that I think of, Rain, as, as being like these are two sides, you know, richness and complexity. You don't get you don't get richness without complexity, but richness is good. Yeah, mm-hmm. and richness is like the the, the quality that an old hundred year old neighborhood has compared to the brand new subdivision. And a hundred years ago, uh, my neighborhood, well, okay, 80 years ago, my neighborhood was a brand new subdivision and all the houses, if you get inside them, you can almost see that they used to have the same floor plan, but now they look nothing alike. Yeah. yeah and, and, and it's great because Christopher Alexander would approve of that. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. And that kind of a like evolutionary aspect. Yeah. It's a quality of, of a legacy. Like I, I really dislike when people say legacy code is bad. It's like this legacy code is why you're employed right now. And there's a lot of truth in all this uh, richness uh, that you are not taking into consideration. Amir, I'm curious. So we just said that this richness is a quality of legacy and it is. So if you look at like the unity game engine that people are using and held back by, because it's built on old assumptions, and yet it's built with the legacy of it solved a lot of problems. Yes. Some of those, all reasons are historical reasons. Some of them are still valid. Some of those problems don't exist anymore. Right. And this house doesn't have, the house next door doesn't have air conditioning yet uh, because it's got radiant heat and installing air conditioning is hard. So how do you balance that appreciation of richness with like needing to build on the power of the modern world? I think the first step is just understanding, right? So when Unity does, uh, so an example, it's got Delta Time. And I understand why Delta Time is there from a legacy standpoint. It was there because uh, frame rates varied. Uh, it was there because we want to push frame rates to the limits. We want to go as fast as possible. As hardware gets better, your game just gets smoother and smoother, which is fantastic. It's a good premise. 
And so I have an understanding of why Delta Tiny is there. And then I also have an understanding of why we don't need Delta Tiny now. And a part of that is for 2D games, 60 frames per second is trivial to do. If you can't hit 60 FPS on a 2D game, you are writing very rich code. So then the other thing is, uh, with regards to this day and age, specifically your mobile, the operating system actually pins you to either 60 frames per second or 30. There is no in-between. So when you think about Delta Time, it's either going to be 0.17 you know, for your frames or double that. And that's all you have. So the developer is going through all this effort to do this multiplication. And in my head, I'm going, the whole reason you picked Unity is to go cross-platform. And the platforms you're going to literally only have two steps, 60 and 30. What are you doing? Why are you killing yourself with this? Then it's like, well, yeah, it's for the better video cards and whatnot. And then I told them and I responded, like, okay, I understand for 3D games when you want to push the limits and, you know, do that. But for 2D games, 60 frames per second is 60 frames per second. There's no compelling reason to render at 120 frames per second. Another example of Unity is that they have a concept of a vector vector class for, uh, for 2D games. So when you say the location of the sprite is equal to this vector 3, and I'm going, vector 3? What? What? We're dealing with the 2D game. It's X and Y. Why do you have a Z? And the reason is because Unity started off as a 3D engine. So they added 2D after the fact, and then they reused some of those previous concepts. And it adds noise, right? But I at least understand why that noise is there. And so I think the respect for the legacy is not to immediately say this sucks. It's to say, okay, this is there for a reason. I have no idea why, but it's there for a reason. This if block with nothing inside of it, with a no-op, is there for a reason. I have no idea why, but I need to understand that before making a claim to its viability in the present. That's kind of how I respect what Unity has done. Reminds me of 1989 when I got my first PC. It had a hardware switch on the back that would switch from 4.77 megahertz to 8 megahertz. And for a long time, I wondered why you would ever want to slow down your CPU. And and I, I eventually learned that it was because certain games had been written with a fixed clock speed. And if you ran them at 8 megahertz, everything would double and you couldn't play them. Oh, God, we're, we're, we're right back to that now. I had an entire <laughs> box of games, like 800 games that were all that way. And I was running them on a 486, and I basically couldn't run them. <laughs> yeah, Wing, Wing wow. Commander on my own. Wing Commander 3, was yeah. Either, it was like, this was, I think, like Wing Commander 1, but it was t- too fast or too slow, depending on which position the turbo button was in. Yeah, uh, and we're, we're right back to it. Great. Now, every iPhone and uh, Android game out there is pinned to 60 hertz. Thanks. <laughs> we're going to recreate these things 30 years later, and like, we can't run any of this stuff. <laughs> Because we don't, so, because Hertz doesn't make any sense anymore. Yeah. The variety that's in Unity is a response to the variety of things people want to do with Unity, right? And have ever wanted. And have ever yes. wanted. I think that goes back to that whole idea of continuity of design. And something that we, I think, miss is the discoverability of these continuities. Ooh. So you think about the spectrum, and then the next obsessive step is okay, how do I position a framework? How do I position our code base? such that someone writes an FS statement, but then the compiler or the language of the framework says, hey, you know what? You're getting to the point where you probably want to take a step to the next point in that spectrum. One thing with the game engine uh, that people say is, Amir, you don't have any documentation. And the API docs are a little sparse, but it's because I think uh, API docs are a sub-optimization. I need to think of ways to 
let them start with the hello world and discover the next pieces without having to go to Stack Overflow or Docs. It's like the engine tells you, it looks like you're doing this, hopefully not a clippy kind of thing, but just this idea of, can I create a AST of their current code, of their current file, and make some assumptions or try to do some kind of heuristics that helps me communicate to them that, hey, you're doing this, it's probably better to use this new class because this does exactly what you want to do. And I think uh, that's something that's horribly missing in Unity and why you get all the things that everyone ever wanted. And there's like a, there's a checkbox for that, is a joke we say. That, oh, I want to do this. There's a checkbox for that. But no one remembers where any of this stuff is. It sucks. Right. And I don't want right. to. Yeah, this is where languages like Elm and Elixir are demonstrating that it's all about the error messages that you give people. Right. The yes. help and guidance messages. I finally was sitting back here thinking about Rain's question earlier about being a weirdo, being on the edge, being an outlier, thinking differently than everyone else. And the thing that I was thinking about is socially, there's this pushback against being a different sort of weirdo. And people that are more extreme create space for others to be within that boundary. So it's like you push the outer limit on what extremeness is socially acceptable by being out there and different. And then other people are like, Oh, that can be a little more extreme. And so, so people that push boundaries tend to create a gravity that pulls that direction. And when, you know, those outliers become centers of, you know, communities, their values in the communities they build around them tend to echo whatever philosophy they believe and demonstrate as just a person being in the world. And so you see these pockets of communities center around certain values. And so I started to think about the way that we create movements for these new ways of thinking. Who are the people that are like totems for new ways of thinking out there or values that we want to adopt and center around in our culture? I think a part of that, specific to tech, is how we phrase some of the, the approaches that we take. Do any of you all play Smash Brothers? Yes. We have we have a couple. Uh, Avdi, you were very proud in raising your hand. Can you give me a little bit of background? Maybe you can help me with this explanation I'm about to do. I don't know. I just like Smash Brothers. Who's your main? Do you play like um, tourney, tourney style or? What's that? Okay, never mind. I give up. I like being in a room <laughs> with a bunch of people who are playing Smash Brothers. That's what I like. Cool. Um, I like Marth a lot. Yes. Um, I like Samus a lot. I only play Wii Fit Trainer. Wii Fit Trainer? It's a good game. The character. No, no, oh, the character. The, the Wii Fit okay. Trainer is one of the, yeah, yeah, one of the yeah, people yeah. you can the fight ultimate. with in Smash yeah. Brothers. Because awesome. Smash Brothers is like everybody who should has no business being in a contest with each other fighting. Yes, it's, it's so awesome. In the wider, uh, just the general game community, and specifically with Smash Brothers, there's this concept of a meta. What is the current meta? And the idea there, and th- that that word is very key. It's meta. Right? What is the meta? And uh, this started back in uh, Super Smash Bros. Melee, which came out, I think, 2001. There's a three-hour documentary on YouTube about it, by the way, about the history of Smash Brothers. You really have to like Smash Brothers to get through the documentary, but it's really good. <laughs> um, I cut my teeth on Melee, yeah. Yeah. And so uh, the beauty of Melee was that over the years, they had many, many competitions. And the current meta, or the meta for Melee, was that for you to win a tournament, you have to be good with Fox, uh, Marth, Sheik, 
And that's basically it. Like mm. you had to be one of those three people uh, to have any kind of fighting chance against in the, in the top tier uh, competitive arenas. And that was the current meta. That's what it was. And what happened was that someone came in, um, they, they actually have, uh, they have the term, uh, they have the five gods. And then the plus one came almost a decade later. And the plus one, he used Yoshi. And mm. this is effectively. By the five gods, do we mean like they're players? players? Mm. Okay. Yeah, so they were crowned the five gods over that decade. And then someone came in and uh, he became a demigod, essentially. And he used Yoshi. And Which threw everyone off because that's not who they were used to fighting. Yeah. And so it's off meta. And the thing was, was that he was so it was unreal uh, that someone could be the character that could counter or that could contest mm. all the current aspects of meta. And the problem I think we have in the te- uh, technical community is that we don't use meta and off meta. We use best practices and no. that and everything else that's not best practices. And it's like, no, that is totally the wrong way to think about it. There is a current meta. And we're not, I'm not disputing that, but there are off-meta solutions. And usually the people that provide a, or try to present off-meta solutions know the meta solution incredibly well, right? The only way he was able to do Yoshi and play Yoshi the way he was able to play to counter the top three current meta picks was because he knew the meta so well that he was able to extrapolate and say, this is the off-meta answer to what the current meta is that will upset everyone. So if you understand Unity really well and the problems that it solves, then you can find the problems that it doesn't solve well and use an interpreted dynamic language uh, to make those clean. Exactly. And then the problem, though, is that the immediate response I get for presenting something like that would be, that's not best practices. But if I was in a fighting community, if I was playing melee, they'd be like, oh, that's a nice off meta. What you're doing is off meta, which is because they can't deny that you won if if it's a fight. It's like what you're doing. Hey, Yoshi guy, what you're doing is off meta. So you have to start a fight by asking them to make sprites move diagonally. (laughs) Unfortunately. And it's just the presentation of it. It, it, It's this acceptance that what the general populace or the greater populace is doing right now is not a best practice. It's the current meta, right? And there's yeah, nothing. There's no absolute best. It's just right. what are people doing right now? Yeah. And the current meta is to build stuff with this technology stack. And people like that because it's safe. They won't get fired for doing it. And that's totally fine, right? There are benefits to being on meta because there's precedence and in it's established as and meta. interoperability. Yeah. And the, the challenge comes with presenting a dissenting opinion. When you say meta and off meta, it's different than saying best practices. And what is the opposite of best practices? No. Other practices? Crappier? Yeah. Like there's no, there's no good way to frame not best practices. And it also, it also uh, puts out there that the meta evolves. Yeah. It's a, it's an evolving thing. And then off meta ideas will come and off meta challenges the current meta, which forces the meta to change. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you know the off meta is adopted, but it forces the change. And um, these off meta solutions and meta solutions need each other. And right now, we I don't think we have them in the technological space. So to rephrase, in a technical context, looking at best practices, if we understand the current best practices in software development well enough 
that we can also see what the side effects are from those particular optimizations, what is not getting optimized, what's getting left out, then we can find the off meta solution that optimizes for these other sorts of things in the software world to give us new sorts of leverage and advantage that people maybe aren't thinking of. Yeah. And I think the other emphasis is as a community, we need to stop calling the best practices. Yeah, that's a, that's yeah. a phrasing yeah. that holds us back. Yes. And, and this then is the balance between the richness of legacy and the modernity of newer solutions. It's really understanding both yes. the historical reasons that are embedded in the legacy and the new things that are available and new possibilities that you're exploring that people couldn't explore before. Right. And also understanding the goals and needs of the practitioners, the people actually using this stuff. Well, one final comment. If yes. all the game engine stuff and all the cool things that I was talking about actually sounds really cool, go to fiddle.dragonruby.org and you can try my off-meta solution to game dev in the browser. Hot with cool. an a, With an editor side-by-side. There's a tic-tac-toe sample app and a pong sample app, both under like 150 lots of code. That are off metal, completely off metal. But uh, yeah, fatal.dragonruby.org. And from there, you'll, you will be taking the red pill. All right. So this is the point in the show where we go into reflections and we all wrap up any final comments we have. And Amir, you, you get to go last. Uh, Jess, you want to start? Sure. I had a bunch of thoughts, but I'll just stick to one. Amir mentioned the phrase, a pin on my upkeeps and... I thought that was really interesting as in that the more you limit overhead, if you're constantly reducing overhead, reducing the time it takes you to do the things you need to do, then you can continually do more things. Bob, do you want to go next? Sure. So I'm just still rolling around meta and off meta in my head. I think that's a wonderful framing and I think it's going to be buzzing around in my brain for a while. We could say mainstream and new stream. Maybe, yeah. Maybe. Counterculture. I think we just need to play more Smash Brothers. Also true. So hard. Uh, so one idea that that stuck with me from earlier was the discussion about the smooth conceptual gradient between the simplistic implementation and the complex implementation. I can't remember the exact phrasing that we used, uh, but that really uh, struck with me. And it the, the what popped into my head during that discussion was, you know, premature abstraction is harmful just the same way as premature optimization because you're going into an abstract state that you don't know that you actually need long before you know what actually needs to be built. And I think that's a useful way of thinking about that. And also just the discussion of that uh, continuity of design. Yes. Thank you, Jessica is a useful way for me to think about, you know, one of the ways that the Ruby language works and to talk about and to advocate for using simpler uh, solutions as the initial build and then like waiting for an evolution to make them more complex. And so I think that's going to be useful in the future. Okay. I have a thing. Oh, boy, is it a thing. So we've been talking a lot about continuity. And and the flip side of continuity is uh, discreteness, of course. And humans have a very complicated relationship continuity and discreteness. We are very good at forming a, a continuous representation of something discrete and a discrete representation of something continuous. So... Continuity of design is based on some discrete thing we're doing, whether it's a program transformation or typing individual keys into the keyboard, something underlying that is discrete. But at the same time, something underlying that, i.e. human cognition, is continuous. And even the dichotomy between discrete and continuous is up for debate. 
we're very good, generally speaking, at managing these things, but we also have heuristics that fail us and we make category errors and things like that, where we have a failure of mistaking something discrete for continuous. And I think it's really interesting for me to tease out how these two things interplay. One of the threads I see through all this is this process-oriented thinking. That if we look at everything as a process, if we look at everything as spectrum over time, then there's an immediate set of problems that emerge. And if I imagine the thoughts in my head of where I'm at and the things I'm thinking of as like a graph where from this perspective, from this vantage point, I can see a variety of things in front of me. I might innovate and jump to any of those things I can see. And I can spend time investing in exploring and putting more things on that map. Or I can jump to one of the things available on the map. And if we start thinking about our thoughts and exploring our thoughts as a graph of new places we can reach that has spectrum in the nature of the movements, this idea of discoverability is essentially a dimension that causes other options to be seen on the map. And so when I think about process-oriented thinking, the meta of process-oriented thinking is this landscape of discoverability. It's a beautiful thing. All right. So I guess for my reflection, I am going to destroy Unity, by the way, but talking about my competitor in the 2D game engine space, <laughs> uh, I think I, during this conversation, I have to be really cognizant about being consistent with my philosophies, specifically with regards to legacy code, even when it comes to a competitor. The marketing side of me says, yeah, oh, this, these other 2D game engines are horrible, air quote. But at the same time, they have a legacy that I need to respect. And especially in those situations where I'm dealing with a competitor or something that I'm, you know, direct, have a vested interest in with regards to seeing them do poorly relative to myself, I have to be extra sensitive to uh, respecting what they did put in place. That was good to dial in on. Okay, well, thank you for joining us, Amir. This was a lot of fun. 